Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Okay, John 3, open your Bibles 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who has with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of God. Amen. Thanks, Melissa. You guys, before we start this morning, I just um, just feel burdened to pray for uh, what's going on in uh, Paris uh, around the world. So let's let's pray really quick for them. Um, Father, we come to you um, as many are this morning, um, Lord, with with heavy hearts um, uh, about the tragedy that that just happened a few days ago. Um, but we come uh, with lots of hope. We know, Lord, that you are the God of peace, um, and you're the God of justice. And um, we put our hope and faith in you, um, that you will bring about ultimate peace, and you will bring about ultimate justice. And even now we pray, Lord, that your kingdom of peace, uh, Lord, your kingdom of justice would come uh, even on this earth as it is in heaven. Um, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. You guys talked in the greeting time about the most amazing natural sight that you've seen. And isn't it, isn't it amazing the, the joy and wonder and awe that can fill you when you see this magnificent natural wonder and you feel very small? Um, so this picture on the screen back here, ooh, picture on the screen back here is... Uh, a picture that was taken actually quite a few years ago in 1990 um, by the Voyager 1 spacecraft. It's a picture of this planet 
from about 4 billion miles away. So here we are, right here. So doesn't that make you feel small? Um, doesn't it make you feel that we're just a small part of this massive existence? And this is why we love to see those magnificent natural wonders, isn't it? I mean, this is why we go uh, on a road trip to a national park or we go drive out to the desert and stare up at the sky in the middle of the night uh, to see just that star-filled sky. It, it, that's the awe that you feel when you realize that you are very small. And this world is very, very big, right? Um, about this picture up here, Carl Sagan wrote, and I just want you to stare at the picture as you listen to this. He wrote this. He said, where are we? Who are we? We find ourselves on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Look again at that pale blue dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was and lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there. On a moat of dust, suspended on a sunbeam, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We are small, right? And our universe is magnificent. And, I, you know, I never really, um, I, I never really connected, I, I never really figured out why I feel so much joy and so much uh, just uh, amazement when I look at something like that until I read something that was very helpful by a pastor. And he wrote this. He said, the really great and wonderful moments of joy in this world are not moments of self-satisfaction, but of self-forgetfulness, right? Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside ourselves. At each of these rare and precious moments in life, Beside the Grand Canyon, before the Alps, under the stars, is an echo of a far greater excellence, namely the glory of God. And this is why the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The universe is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. We are small and the universe is massive. We're small and our God is magnificent. And really, this is what I want to explore in this passage this morning. This is the reason that, uh, when we just read through this passage, this is the reason that John can tell us that his joy has been made complete. And don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of joy? Don't you want to be able to sit back and just say, ah, my joy has been made complete. 
Like, how do we get there? What do, what do we do? What is it that John had? Why is it that he was able to say those things? And we're not. So many times we are running around scrambling to fill our lives uh, with some kind of sense of joy. You know, we go on vacation. I'm going on vacation next week, which is awesome. But I could go on a thousand vacations. I could go on a million vacations and feel that just for a moment, that, that smallness looking at the bigness of, uh, of um, existence, and yet it's gone, right? It's, it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. What is going to give us that long-lasting joy? I think it's found in seeing ourselves small and seeing God as very, very big. And so we're going to talk about two things this morning as we look at this joy that John the Baptist had. We're going to look at his confidence in his humble calling, that's the small part, and his confidence in his highly exalted king. That's the big part, right? So his confidence in his humble calling and his confidence in his highly exalted king. So first off, um, John's joy was rooted in his confidence in his calling, in his small calling. Um, So John's calling was a small role in a big cosmic production. Take a look again at verse 22. Take a look again at verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. So this was John's calling, right? He was there to baptize people, to take people and put them under the water and then bring them back up. Okay, That's what John was put on the planet to do. And uh, he, he even says so much. Remember a few uh, chapters back, a few weeks back in John chapter 1, he says, I am, I'm the voice calling in the desert to prepare the way for the Lord. He was there to get people ready, get the people ready for Jesus to come. That's it. And so you can imagine his surprise, maybe, when, when there's controversy <laughs> around this, right? So take a look at verse 25. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, across you, uh, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So we have a little bit of ministry competition going on, right? We have Jesus' ministry versus John's ministry, and it's, it's a battle on who baptizes best, I, I guess, apparently. Apparently one was working, one wasn't. I don't know. I don't know exactly. We don't know the, the specifics of, of the um, disagreement. Um, but we know that uh, John's ministry was dwindling. John's church was had many more empty seats, and Jesus's was thriving, right? His was getting big. His was, uh, you know, where, where people wanted to be. And uh, John knew that this wasn't his calling. His calling wasn't to gather a bunch of people. His calling was to push people um, towards Jesus. So look at his response. Look at John's response, and I love this. Take a look at verse 28. He says, You yourselves bore witness of me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The, f- uh, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Uh, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And just as a side note, um, we are having a baptism coming up. Um, so it's really cool. And, and I love that, the, that baptism in this passage is so closely connected with a wedding. Um, because there's some symbolism there, isn't there? There's, a, there's some symbolism in having a, a wedding ceremony and having this celebration that celebrates the union of two people. And when John says that he's the best man in this uh, cosmic wedding of, connect, of Jesus connecting with his followers, what he's saying is that he is there in a front row seat and he gets to celebrate, he gets to enjoy watching people come to their new life united with Christ. And so we want to have a baptism because we want to enjoy that with you. Uh, for those of you that may have come to, to Christ recently, um, this, this baptism is a connection, it's a union of you, your life, with Christ's life. So you go under the water and you die to your, own, your old life and you come up renewed. You come up uh, with new life connected with Jesus. And we want to celebrate that. And we'd love to do that. And we're going to do that in a few weeks. So please, again, talk to us about that. If you have questions, we're going to take you through. Eric's going to do a class um, right before the baptism too. But um, if, if, if you want to do that, if that's where um, your heart is right now, or you know somebody that does, let us know. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Um, but this wedding imagery points, again, to Jesus as the groom. And we see this all through the New Testament, that Jesus um, is, is a groom united with his bride, the church, united with people in that same intimate way, in that same picture. And so when John says that he's the best man, he's, he's really reminding people, hey, first off, I am not Jesus. And secondly, I've got the best seat in the house. I get to see these people coming uh, into a relationship with Jesus. So um, John's calling was a small role in a big cosmic production, in a big part of what God is doing. And we need lots of Johns for a church like this. We need lots of people who have um, this type of humility. The type of humility, um, like R.C. Sproul. I want to share this, picture, uh, this, this story. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, R.C. Sproul, some of you know, he's kind of a bigwig theologian. And he was teaching at a church on uh, the way that God saves people, the way that God brings people into a, a saving relationship with himself. And if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, you know that he definitely likes to emphasize God's sovereignty in the matter, that God is in control of bringing people to himself. Whereas there are other people um, who also like to talk about how God comes into a relationship with people, but they like to emphasize uh, men's free will and how uh, men choose to come to God and choose to follow God. And people like, um, like Billy Graham is one good example. And so there was a Q&A time after, uh, after R.C. Sproul preached this, you know, this, this you know, heavy doctrinal message about God's drawing people to himself. And, and somebody asked, they said, hey, do you think you're going to see Billy Graham in heaven? And if you know anything about this kind of whole controversy, you know that it's, that's a pretty, you know, people get heated on this issue, right? And, and uh, you know what his response was? He says, no, I don't think I'm going to see Billy Graham in heaven. And there was a gasp, of course. <laughs> right? There was a gasp. And then um, he said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to see Billy Graham in heaven because Billy Graham is going to be so close to the throne of God 
and I'll be so far away from the throne of God that I'll be lucky to even get a glimpse of him. And he realized, so R.C. Sproul realized that despite his deep doctrinal convictions, which are really important, um, that he had a small role in a big production, in a big part of what God is doing. What's your small role in God's cosmic redemptive plan? You know, maybe it's setting up chairs or helping in children's ministry. Maybe it's opening up your home for a small group or just even going to a small group. Um, it might be joining our Thursday MSJC outreach team from 12 to 2. There's a little plug for you. Um, you know, it could be one of those things, but maybe you don't know. Maybe you haven't considered. Maybe you still have the question, okay, I, I know that I, I should have a part, but what can my small part uh, accomplish? What difference can our small role have in God's overall plan? Well, how does a guy like John know? Take a look. Check out verse 27. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. So how do we know that our small role can make a big difference? It's because John, John knew because he knew, he understood who was calling the shots, right? He knew who was in control. So your small role can, can have a huge impact in what God is doing because God is running the show, right? He is in control. So if it's setting up a chair, this may be the chair. And I, occasionally I'll think about this. This may be the chair. You know, when you unfold a chair, you put it down, you kind of like, I, I like them lined up all nice and neat because I'm OCD. But um, that might be the chair where someone uh, surrenders their heart to God for the very first time. They hear the gospel message, and that is the chair they're sitting in when their lives changed, right? Um, maybe it's uh, in, in children's ministry. Maybe it's helping or teaching in children's ministry. That child may change the world for the gospel. Maybe it's opening up your home or uh, for a small group or just going to one. It could make all the difference in someone's life. Maybe it is joining us on Thursdays from 1230 to 2 at MSJC. And just being there at the table, because your presence there may help initiate a life-changing conversation. I'll tell you, when, when I was in college, um, I accidentally filled out one of those cards. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't know. This was way before, you know, the, the whole, you know, giving out your information and being careful about that, because this was before spam and everything. Um, but I filled out one of those cards, and a week later, uh, I, I had two... Uh, two guys from um, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ that knocked on my dorm room. And um, they, they came in. I talked with them for a while. They shared the gospel with me. God used those two men um, to work powerfully in my life, um, in discipleship and connecting me with uh, Christian community. Um, and those men understood they had a very small role to play in, in, a, in, in the big plan of what, what God was doing. And they understood that he was calling the shots. Even them talking to an 18-year-old kid uh, in a dorm room could have a huge impact. So what's your role in God's cosmic plan? Someone once said that you're one person out of 7 billion, on, uh, out of 7 billion people on one planet out of eight planets, or nine, I don't know <laughs> what the current status is of Pluto, um, in one star system out of one billion star systems, in one galaxy out of 100 billion galaxies, and you are enormously insignificant. 
and I like that quote, but I would change the ending there, that you are enormously significant because um, God can use you to reach someone for him, for an eternal relationship with him that nobody else can. You're connected with people in, in, in a unique way that I am not. And God can use you. God can use small um, people and small things to accomplish huge plans. His, his uh, uh, plans. And John had so much joy because of that, right? And his confidence was rooted not only in his calling, but also um, more specifically, his calling, or sorry, his joy was rooted in his king, right? He knew who Jesus was. Um, and for those of you that did go to a, a small group, you kind of dug in to this passage a little bit. And what you found out um, was that this passage is not primarily about John or his joy, really, or baptism or humility, um, even though there's that one great bumper sticker verse in there, um, that he must, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. I always got to be careful when you say that. Um, <laughs> But the structure of the passage, the actual structure of the passage, um, it's, it's, it's showing that in the original language, it points to verse 31 as being the literal crux of this passage, right in the middle. So that all of the verses before that, verses uh, 22 to 30, they point towards verse 31. And all the verses after that, verses 32 through actually 4-3 in the next chapter, verse 3 in the next chapter, they all point back to verse 31. And what is verse 31? We'll take a look at it. It says, He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So this passage, this whole thing is all about Christ. It all points to Christ. It's all pointing um, right there. And John's joy is rooted in him. It's rooted in his character. So John was first convinced of Christ's authority. So if you take a look in verse 31, that's, what's, that's what verse 31 is all about. It's about Christ's authority, that he is above all and that everything else is under him. So why is John so joyful? Why, was, why could he say that his joy was complete? He was so happy um, it, even though his ministry was diminishing and Jesus's was growing because he knew that he wasn't above all, he knew that Jesus was above all, right? He knew who Jesus was, that Jesus is above um, all and he is from heaven, so he has authority. Um, he's the author of life, so of course he has authority. And so, um, you know, if you have big questions about life and you know, what you're supposed to do with your life, when it comes to any of those big questions, everybody is listening to some authority. Everybody has some authority over your life. Um, you're either going to be listening, according to this verse, you're either going to be listening to an earthly voice. Take a look at it, uh, again at verse 31. It says, um, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Or you're going to be listening to the voice from heaven. So when it comes to success, maybe, in life, when it comes to success, you might be listening to either an earthly voice or, an hev or a heavenly voice. So an earthly voice on the topic of success might say something like, you can achieve anything if you believe in yourself, right? That might be an earthly voice. The voice from heaven says that the meek will inherit the earth and true success is found in being a servant. When it comes to sex, maybe, uh, 
you know, you could listen to an earthly voice or you can listen to a heavenly voice. You can listen to an earthly voice that says, you know, have fun, be safe, use protection, be smart about it, and that's it. Or you can listen to a heavenly voice that says, don't give your body to anyone that you're not ready to give your life to in marriage, that you haven't given your life to in marriage. Right? When it comes to the poor, and, or you might listen to an earthly voice. An earthly voice might say something like, you know, they're just living out the consequences of their own poor decisions. There's nothing you can do. But the voice of, from heaven says um, that whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Are there other areas where you're listening to earthly voices rather than the heavenly voice? You know, the question that you might ask is, why should I listen to the heavenly voice? Why aren't these earthly voices worth listening to? And I'll tell you, it's because Jesus is above all, and he sees all, right? It's the same reason that you trust Google (laughs) with directions, right? It's the same reason that when you're driving, you know, you can only see maybe a few lanes ahead of you in traffic, or, you, you know, you can maybe only see a few blocks ahead of you, and you might not know exactly where you're going, And so you ask Google, and Google not only tells you where you're going, but it tells you how to avoid traffic, and it tells you what time you're going to get there. It's completely amazing. I don't even know how they do that. Uh, Well, I do know how they do that, not not exactly. They do it because they um, they have satellites, right? They see the complete picture. They see the whole view of traffic. And if you can trust Google because they have an all-encompassing view of traffic, I mean, why can't we trust Jesus? Because he has an all-encompassing view of reality. He knows what's ahead and what's behind. And so when he says, hey, go this way, do this, we can trust him because he knows. He sees everything. He's from heaven and he's above all. He's the author of life, so of course he has authority over it. And I love how um, G.K. Chesterton put it. He says this, he says, if I found a key on a road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock in my house, I would assume that most likely the key was made by the lock maker. And if I find a set of teachings set out in a pre-modern Middle Eastern society that has proven itself of such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture, inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where a century ago the name of Jesus Christ was not even ever heard. If such teaching so obviously fits the lock of so many human souls in so many times and so many places, Are they likely the work of a deceiver or a fool? In fact, it is more likely that they were designed by the heart maker. Jesus is from uh, from heaven and above all. We can trust him with his authority. And John was not only convinced by Jesus' authority, um, he was also convinced by Jesus' testimony. So take a look at verse 32. Um, John was convinced of Jesus' testimony. He says in verse 32, He bears witness to what he has, has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. 
So who was Jesus' best witness? It was himself, right? Jesus' best witness about himself was himself. He spoke very openly um, about who he was. He, he didn't leave it to question. He didn't leave us trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy? He spoke very clearly. He uttered the words of God. And whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, right? Um, there's no way that any person serious about figuring out what Jesus actually said about himself would walk away saying that, ah, he had a few good things to say. He was a good teacher. Um, Listen to how, uh, of all people, uh, late President Ronald Reagan. Uh, so some of you guys are Reagan fans. Listen to what he said, though, about this. I, I, just, I just found this this week, actually. It was, it was pretty amazing. He wrote it in a letter um, to a person who actually doubted uh, Christ's claims to be God. He said, did Jesus allow us the choice to believe in his teaching but reject his statements about his own identity? I still can't help wondering how we can explain away what to me is the greatest miracle of all recorded in history. A young man whose father is a carpenter grows up working in his father's shop. One day he puts down his tools and walks out of his father's shop. He starts preaching on a street corner and in in the nearby countryside, walking from place to place, preaching all the while, even though he's not an ordained minister. He never gets farther than an area perhaps of 100 miles wide at most. He does this for three years. Then he's arrested, tried, and convicted. There's no court of appeal, so he's executed, along with two common thieves. Those in charge of his execution roll dice to see who gets his clothing, the only possessions he has. His family can't even afford a burial place, so he is buried in a borrowed tomb. End of story. No, this uneducated, propertyless young man has, for 2,000 years, had a greater effect on the world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, all the conquerors, generals, and admirals, all the scholars, scientists, and philosophers who have ever lived, all of them put together. How do we explain that unless he really was who he said he was? How do we explain that? He bears witness to what he has seen And what he has heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 32. Well, some did, right? John did. John received his testimony. And the question this morning is, have you? Have you received his testimony? Are you willing to receive his testimony? Um, Because you see, the last thing that John was really convinced of, um, that really brought him the kind of joy where he could say that my joy was complete, was he was convinced of his own need for Christ. So if you look at verse 35, verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much that uh, you have... um, spoken to so many of us um, and that you've met so many of us um, on a personal level. Lord, we we thank you um, that so many of us in this room have had an encounter with Jesus um, that has been completely transformative. Lord, thank you so much that we can look back on our lives and we can see um, a, a time when we saw him clearly for the first time 
We trusted him uh, to take away our sin, to live the life that we can't live, um, and, and, to give, and to provide us with um, his spirit so that we can live um, a life that's pleasing to you. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are people here that don't know you, um, Lord, I, I pray that they would be compelled um, to, to come to this Jesus, to investigate him, and to see him uh, for who he is. And Lord, I pray um, that we can uh, join them in that journey. Lord, I pray that um, uh, so many of us here can, can uh, uh, be, be an Andrew, Lord, that, that would bring somebody to Jesus and then um, have their lives completely transformed. We thank you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.